Beloved, our text for this evening is Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 10. Together with that, we'll consider Lord's Day 5 of the Catechism, all of which we read, and I will not uh, read again, but we will consider them through the message tonight. Well, last Sunday, Dr. Kanadong took you to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim the mount of cursing, and the mount of blessing. This evening, we are introduced to another mount, Mount Calvary. Mount Calvary lies at the very heart of the gospel, doesn't it? Of course, we need the mount of cursing in order to understand our sin, in order to be convicted of our sin. To be convicted that we lie under the curse apart from the blood of Christ. At the very heart of the good news of the gospel is Mount Calvary. The fact that Christ has accomplished salvation through His sufferings, through His death, through His resurrection. Without the work and the person of Christ, there would be no life. There would be no gospel. There would be no preaching, there would be no saints, there would be no church, there would be no evangelism, there would be no hope. In fact, there would be only curse. There would only be condemnation. There would be hell. That's it. But if we had to boil down the gospel to one simple definition... It would be Christ's own cry on Mount Calvary as He hung there on that cross of cursing, of shame, of punishment, where He bore the penalty of the wrath of God, and when He bore it to the very end, to the very last drop He drank from that cup of wrath, He cried out, it is finished. It is finished. That, in essence, is a summary of the good news of the gospel. Why is that? Why is that a summary, a three-word summary of the good news of the gospel? It is finished. Because it presupposes that you and I could not finish and could not even start to accomplish what Christ accomplished on Mount Calvary. That's where the Scriptures take us this evening. That's where the Heidelberg Catechism takes us this evening. That you and I cannot earn our salvation. You and I cannot finish and pay and remove the curse that hangs over us because of our sin. Because of the law that comes and says you have to obey and we cannot But here, in the cry of Christ, we hear of the glorious possibility, the glorious revelation of the gospel. But in that cry, you and I need to understand that we cannot atone for our sin. We need a mediator, a go-between, someone who stands between us and God. 
someone who has paid the price, someone who is perfectly God and also perfectly man. And children, the best way to illustrate what a mediator is is to think of it as a bridge. So between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim was a big valley, a big valley. And what's the best way to get from one mountaintop to another, the fastest way? It's to build a bridge, isn't it? It's to build a bridge. What was that bridge between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim? It was Jesus Christ, as the Old Testament pointed to both the blessing and the curse being bound up in Mount Calvary. Jesus is that bridge, as it were, between us and God. You see, sin has caused that valley, we could say chasm, the Grand Canyon of sin between us and God. The only one who can bridge that is Jesus Christ, and that's where the Bible takes us this evening. That's what Lord's Day 5 emphasizes for us. Our theme then is this, the need for a mediator. The need for a mediator. It's hopeless because of creaturely insufficiency, but it's hopeful because of Christ's sufficiency. The need for a mediator. The need for a mediator. Hopeless because of creaturely insufficiency. It's hopeful because of Christ's sufficiency. So continue thinking with me, children, about this bridge. Who is it that builds this bridge between us and God? Do we lay the foundation of the pillars of the bridge and then God builds the rest of the bridge? Do we start to... to to build perhaps the pillars ourselves, or we we lay the surface of the road on the bridge so that we can get across. We lay the cross beams down. No. You and I cannot even begin to build the bridge. Even with our best works, we heard last Sunday that even our best works cannot make us acceptable to God because we lie under the curse. And so it's from God's side that we are wholly reliant on God to build that bridge for us. And what must that bridge be? Christ must be God and man in one. God in order to bear the wrath of God and man in order to bear the punishment of sin that is due to us. But you know, we're tempted, aren't we, to start building that bridge ourselves. The writer to the Hebrews points out to the Hebrew Christians that they were tempted to do that very thing themselves. They wanted to return back to what they could see and hear and smell in terms of religious worship. They wanted to go back to the Old Testament ceremonies, to the Old Testament system, because then they could, they could see something, you see. They could hear the, the bleeding of the animals as they were laid on the, on the altar. They could smell the smoke. They could smell the blood. They could see everything around them. They wanted a sensory experience of worship. They wanted to bring animals themselves again because they had lost sight of Christ and His all-sufficient work on the cross. 
They wanted to return to the Old Testament way of worshiping because they, they thought this could form the basis for their worship, for their acceptance with God. You see, they wanted to lay the footings of that bridge back to God by returning back to the Old Testament to institute the sacrifices. The reality is they wanted Jesus plus the sacrificial system. They looked back to all the trappings, to all the ceremonies, to all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. The temptation for them as they looked back was to buttress, to shore up, as it were, the work of Christ with a return back to the sacrifices. At least they would have something to hang on to then. Because to live by faith is so hard, you see. That's what Hebrews 11 is saying. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The Hebrew Christians wanted to live by sight. They, they wanted to live by sacrifice. They wanted to live by doing so that they could say, look, this is what we have done. In these moments of temptation, of, of struggle, of trial, they, they fail to see the superiority the greatness, the magnitude of the work and person of Christ. They thought if they could return back to the Old Testament, at least they could contribute something. And so the author to the Hebrews addresses this temptation. He addresses this temptation to to at least lay the footing of the bridge back to God. But the writer to the Hebrews points out the insufficiency of the Old Testament ceremonies and sacrifices to effect salvation, to build that bridge. Our text points out the insufficiency of a mere creature, of a priest, or an animal, or a ceremony to accomplish salvation. That's also what our Lord's Day teaches us this evening as it approaches the satisfaction of the divine justice for sin. In question 12, since then by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Is there no way by which we may escape that punishment and be again received into favor? Is there no way if the way from, from man is cut off, if, if we cannot earn our salvation, if we cannot lay the footing of our salvation, how then can we be saved? Here's the answer. God will have His justice satisfied. Payment has to be made. And therefore, we must make full satisfaction either by ourselves or by another. The demands of divine justice remain. You and I have to pay for that one way or another. But we can't. Question 13 continues. We see that you and I aren't able to make that satisfaction for divine justice. It says, by no means, on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. As the question is asked, can we make that payment? Can we satisfy the divine justice? Absolutely not. 
Question 14 then approaches the question of of whether a mere creature can satisfy God's justice and accomplish salvation for us. The answer is a twofold no. No, in the first sense, that God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man hath committed. So, you and I are wholly responsible for our own sin. And further, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin so as to deliver others from it. So if we could transfer our responsibility to someone else, that someone else could not bear the wrath of God. No animal or human being or any other created thing can accomplish salvation for a sinner. Not even the Old Testament sacrificial system. With everything that that the children of Israel could see and hear and smell. Why is that? Well, the Old Testament sacrificial system was a shadow of the things that were to come. The priest performing the rituals, the sprinkling of the blood of animals, the sacrifice, the animal laid on the altar was insufficient to accomplish salvation. These things were a shadow the writer to the Hebrews says. Hebrews 9.28, we read these words, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And then these words in our text in verse 1 of chapter 10, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image or the very essence of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. A contrast is being built here between the sacrifice of Christ, which is once, and the sacrifices of the Old Testament system, which were offered year after year, day after day, day of atonement after day of atonement. Between the once and the many, between the once and the repeated sacrifices of the Old Testament, the law, the sacrifices, the priest, the ceremonies, it was all shadows, shadows of Christ's offering of himself. Children, perhaps you've played shadow tag before. When the sun is out, you're playing outside with your friends or your, your brothers or your sisters. It's a game I played when I was younger. Shadow tag. You run around and all you had to do was step on the shadow of the person that you were chasing and they would be it. It was sufficient to step on their shadow. You didn't have to touch their body in order for them to be it. You see, that's like the Old Testament sacrifices. When the priest would bring the lamb and lay it on the altar, it was a shadow It wasn't the real thing. It was pointing to the real thing. It was pointing to the Lord Jesus who would come as that lamb, the full and final lamb. But it was just a shadow, you see, a picture pointing to the reality of what Jesus would come to do. All these things were the shadows, the forms, the outlines of the real person, the real thing. 
the Old Testament was a shadow of Christ. A shadow of Christ, of the real person, of the real work, of the real sacrifice that was coming on Mount Calvary. The shadows were helpful in pointing to the reality of what Christ was coming to do, but they were insufficient to accomplish salvation for the Israelite. The believing Israelite would stand before the altar. His hope would not be pinned to the lamb. His hope would not be pinned to the blood of that particular animal laid on the, on the altar. But his hope would be pinned to the reality, to the substance to which the shadow pointed, you see. The sacrifices and offerings had to be offered every day and, and every year. They had to be repeated again and again because they were insufficient of themselves to atone for sin. They were not the reality themselves to satisfy the divine justice against sin. All they could do was point to the person behind the shadow. They could not perfect or save the worshiper bringing the sacrifice. They were insufficient to satisfy divine justice. And when we read that the Lord received the sacrifices of the children of Israel, it's not because of the animal, you see. That animal was a shadow. But it was because of what Christ was coming to do that the Lord received those sacrifices and in those sacrifices received the children of Israel who believed on Him. And so they were a shadow. But they were also a reminder, weren't they? They were constant reminders of the sins that were committed. In verse 2 we read, For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. On the Day of Atonement, the sacrifice would be made. The sacrifice spoke not only of hope and of life, but also reminded the Israelites of why that sacrifice was necessary. It reminded of them of their sins. The sacrifices were inherently insufficient to erase sin in and of themselves. The blood of bulls and goats could not erase the sin of the Israelites. It only served to remind them of their sin and the need for a mediator, the need for the reality of what the shadow was pointing to. The very repetitive nature of the sacrifice pointed to the fact that sin was an ever-present reality. Every time a person sinned, they'd have to bring an offering or a sacrifice. There was not the once for all sacrifice that satisfied the justice of God in the Old Testament. It was always pointing to the reality of what was coming, anticipating, looking forward to the work of Christ. But they could not affect what Christ's sacrifice would accomplish. Once and definitively for the person seeking forgiveness. Imagine the life of the Old Testament worshiper. Sin was committed. 
They would bring an offering on the Day of Atonement. The priest would go behind the veil. The offering pointed to Christ. And by faith, by following the sign, by following the shadow, by following the picture, there would be forgiveness. But sin would rear its ugly head again. And again, the sacrifice would be made. Sacrifices would be offered pointing to Jesus, reminding the people that atonement, full and final and definitive atonement, was coming in the work of Christ. But the repetitive nature of the sacrifice for sins tells us that it was insufficient by itself. You remember what the catechism is saying, what the scriptures are saying, that no creature can satisfy the justice of God. No creature can pay for sin. No animal, no priest, no individual. We cannot even begin to lay the footing for that bridge between us and God. No creature could satisfy the justice of God. No mere creature can serve as that bridge between us and God. Nothing. Nothing can do that. It left the stain of sin, this, this creaturely insufficiency in the Old Testament system. Verse 4 underscores that. It underlines that. It makes it, it magnifies it. It says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. It's not possible. It doesn't say it might not be possible. It is not possible. It states it in the the strongest terms that we could ever speak in. It doesn't leave us in the realm of, of possibilities and maybes or ifs, but it states starkly that the blood shed in the Old Testament was insufficient to take away sin. The word there for taking away is to, to lift off. Sin remained if the worshiper would only look to the blood of the bulls and goats, if they would only stand on the shadow, as it were, if they placed the footing of their salvation on the shadow. There would be no remission of sin. They had to follow the shadow to the good things to come in the coming of Christ. No matter how much blood was spilled, Blood could not forgive sin. That blood could not deal properly with the divine justice from God's perspective. Those sacrifices always pointed to the reality of the coming mediator. It pointed to the reality and the truth that all these things were insufficient to atone for sin. The blood of bulls couldn't do it. The priest himself, dressed in all his, his royal finery, his priestly garments, going into the, the holy of holies on the day of atonement, sprinkling the blood on the, on the mercy seat. Even he could not lift off the sin of the people. The high priest pointed to the work of the mediator, certainly, but he was not that mediator himself. The worshiper himself could not lift off his sin by the repetitive bringing of the sacrifices and shedding of blood. No amount of ritual or work or blood can satisfy divine justice. No creature, no mere creature, no human creature, no no animal can satisfy the divine justice of God. 
There was an inbuilt, creaturely insufficiency that taught the true worshiper to look beyond these things and follow the shadows to the reality in Christ, to lay hold of Him by faith. It is this that the Hebrew Christians had lost sight of. They had lost sight of the reality of the, not of the substance, or not of the the shadow, but they had lost sight of the substance. And they wanted to go back to the shadows, to the things that were insufficient to help them. Maybe that temptation looms large for you. The reality exists that you might try to satisfy divine justice for your sins. It happens to believers. It happened to these Hebrew believers. They wanted to go back. Maybe believers tonight amongst us are tempted like these Hebrews to revert to a form of works righteousness, to go back, to go back to works, to go back to doing and say, Lord, look what I have done. You see, we we want to contribute something, don't we? By nature, that's what we want to do. We think that somehow that will make us acceptable to God, that that will satisfy the divine justice. Or we sin, and our immediate thought is, I need to do better. I need to do better. And so we, re- re- we recommit ourselves to doing better. And of course, believers are called to commit ourselves to live righteously, to live holy because God is holy. But there's a danger, isn't there? But if all that we say when we sin is I need to do better and recommit myself to doing better, there's a danger, a very real danger, in bypassing the blood of Christ to cleanse and forgive our sins when we do this. Because if we sin and all we say is that we need to do better, what is it that we're saying? I need to work myself back into favor with God. And we're not living out of that one sacrifice of Christ. We're not relying on our mediator, the one who is that bridge between us and God. We're relying on ourselves again. We're relying on the things that we can do, on the things that we can touch, the things that we can taste and smell and handle. No, when we sin, we need to heed the wisdom of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is, that is Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive our sins. You get that word there, just. He is just to forgive us our sins. Because it's in Him that the divine justice has been satisfied once for all, definitively. Never to be repeated again. And it's that where we need to turn to again. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so there's a temptation even for believers to return back to works righteousness, to the things that we can do, to the things that we can feel, trying to work ourselves back into God's favor, perhaps trying to feel our way back into God's favor.
But what Scripture calls us to do tonight is to stop trying to build that bridge or add to that bridge and to rest solely upon the bridge that God has made for sinners. It happens to unbelievers as well, doesn't it? To those who think they can earn their way into God's favor somehow in order to be saved, in order to satisfy divine justice. Let me see what I can do in order to earn God's favor. Justice in this world is often portrayed as a a blindfolded woman holding a scale. If we think of God's justice that way, we think that we can somehow add something in the scale of human effort and say, surely God will accept that. If I do this or I do that or if I feel this measure of conviction or if I cry those tears, if I do this or that, somehow I can move that scale and and just push it up just a little bit so it's not so heavy and, and God will receive that. You think of divine justice as a scale. You work hard. Then you offer your works and your deeds to God as a way of satisfying the divine justice. My friend, where does that leave you tonight? If your works and all your efforts are insufficient, your supposed goodness, if that is insufficient to satisfy divine justice, where does that leave you? Wrestle with that question for a moment. Where does that leave you? If you can't satisfy divine justice and you daily increase your debt in the words of the catechism, it's hopeless, isn't it, from your side? You can attempt to lay a brick, to lay a footing, to make your way back to God. The reality is you'll never get there. The chasm remains between you and God. It's hopeless for you if you're looking to yourself or to anyone else. It's hopeless if we look to a mere creature. And so the need for a mediator is hopeless. Finding a mediator is hopeless. If we look to a mere creature... But in our second thought, we see that it's hopeful because of Christ's sufficiency. There is hope this evening because Christ is sufficient. That hope is expressed in this one statement that's contrasted with everything that's been said about the insufficiency of the blood of bulls and goats. Listen to the opening words of verse 5. Wherefore, there's a transition word there. To this point, the author has been portraying the the insufficiency of the animals and of the priests and all these ceremonies. But now there is one, wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. The shadows of the Old Testament now give way to the, the good things of Christ. The shadows are driven away as the Savior now stands before us in the gospel. 
The statement is bursting with hope. Wherefore, when he cometh, the shadow gives way to the substance. That's also what question 15 hints at and will be fleshed out in a, in a fuller way in the next Lord's Day. But it's already hinting, it's already getting to that point where we see the mediator. What sort of mediator and deliverer then must we seek for? For one who is very man and perfectly righteous. For one who has never sinned. And yet more powerful than all creatures That is, one who is very God, and we'll see the reasons for that in the next Lord's Day. But here he is, the mediator and deliverer has come into the world, the one who who is perfect man and who is also God in one person. He came to accomplish salvation, to satisfy divine justice for your and my sins. He's come to fill that great need to be our mediator and deliverer. How do we know that? Well, what did Christ do when he came into this world? Our text tells us, wherefore when he cometh into the world, he saith. Jesus said something when he came into the world. Prophesied in in, in Psalm 40, verse 6. And what is it that he said? Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Christ said that God had prepared for him a body to be laid down as a sacrifice because all of the Old Testament sacrifices were insufficient to atone for sin. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. But a body hast thou prepared me. When Christ came into the world, he spoke words to to tell us of his work as a mediator. These words from the Old Testament also foreshadowed what Christ would do. He came with these words in his mind and on his lips to activate his hands and his feet, his body, to lay it down as a sacrifice, as a whole burnt offering to satisfy the the divine justice of God against sin. All of these sacrifices of the Old Testament had their place in God's economy. But that is not ultimately what God wanted, what God was pleased with. God is never pleased with the shadows. God is pleased with the substance, with the work of Christ. So much so that Christ says, a body hast thou prepared me. In the flesh, as a creature, Christ would come and satisfy the divine justice as a perfect creature. As one who had never sinned and could never sin. And would never sin. Though he was tempted in all points like as we are. In Psalm 40, verse 6, we read of His willingness, His willingness to come and be the mediator, to fulfill that very need that we have this evening, to be the very one for whom we can seek in His Word. In Psalm 40, verse 6, He says, Mine ears hast thou opened 
signifies the willingness of Christ, submits himself by taking a body, by becoming incarnate, by taking on flesh, signifies his obedience to his Father's will. It's an allusion to the Old Testament, to the Old Testament servant who would come after serving his master and he would say, I'm willing to be your master for life. The master would take, his, would take his, his servant and take his ear and, and drill through that ear and that hole would be there as a, as a sign that he was a willing servant for the rest of his life. So Jesus, coming into the world in the flesh, indicated his willingness to submit to his Father's plan of salvation to satisfy God's justice. His body was a mark not only of humiliation, but of His perfect obedience to offer the final and definitive sacrifice for sin. Did you ever think of it this way? If Psalm 40 is a song, then Jesus was singing this song as He came into the world, singing of His willingness to lay himself down as the mediator, to lay himself down as as that bridge across that chasm of sin so that sinners can be reconciled, so that sinners can be made at peace with God. You see, that bridge comes wholly from God's side. It is God who lays down that bridge. It's like a drawbridge. goes up on one side. And it goes down from that same side. The person who's on the other side of that bridge is is powerless to get across unless that bridge falls down into place. And here we have that bridge coming down from heaven willingly, laying himself down across that chasm as the perfect man, as God as the God-man who is able to sustain the wrath of God in his person. Mine ears hast thou opened. A body thou hast prepared me. Those two statements, one from Hebrews 10 and the other from Psalm 40 verse 6 are synonymous with each other. The ear taken from the Old Testament is is taken as the whole of the body of Christ. Signifying His divine mission and His Father's doing His Father's pleasure and His sacrifice on the cross. It's in the words of this song that He offers Himself as the sufficient mediator to satisfy divine justice, to bridge the mount of blessing and the mount of cursing through Mount Calvary. Let me ask you this question this evening. Whom are you seeking as the mediator? Who are you seeking as the mediator? Where are you looking for forgiveness, for atonement, for satisfaction of the divine justice? I urge you to look no further than what we have revealed in the Word of God and what we can in the Heidelberg Catechism. 
to look no further than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself who reveals Himself, who came willingly for sinners and wretches like you and me to lay Himself down, to be the mediator in obedience to His Father. As Christ speaks these words as He enters into the world, He offers worship to His Father. That's what the Old Testament sacrifices were about, weren't they? There was, it was the system of worship that Israel offered to God. But here Christ offers himself as, or offers worship to his Father on behalf of sinners. He speaks of that worship in verses 7 and 8. He says, Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. So the Old Testament worship was insufficient to satisfy divine justice. But here Jesus comes in the words of Psalm 40 and he says, I delight to do thy will. I'm offering my worship to you, O God, as the only worship that is acceptable to thee. He offers the final and definitive act of worship by offering Himself as the sacrifice to end all other sacrifices. He indicates by these words that all the sacrifices of bulls and goats could not affect salvation. His coming was to do the will of God. And that will was found in the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. That was the worship that God was looking for. That would provide for Himself in satisfying divine justice, providing for sinners a way back to God. At once, in these words, Christ is both perfect man and also very God, the qualified mediator to offer the worship that sinners like you and me must offer in order to satisfy divine justice. It's not our acts of worship. It's not our singing tonight. It's not our listening tonight. It's not our doing as Christians that will bring us near to God. It is not these things that will reconcile us with a holy and a righteous God who has standards of inflexible justice. Rather, it is this final act of worship and sacrifice of Christ, the mediator, in offering up himself that can only bring a sinner near to God. And so as we pray, as we read, as we worship tonight, as we sing and as we listen it's always, you see, in connection, should always be in connection with this full and final and definitive offering of Christ Himself. Otherwise, our worship is meaningless, and we will never get close to God. So as we do our devotions in the morning or in the evening, as we read the Bible at family worship, as we come to worship at church, All these things are insufficient of themselves if they're 
devoid of Christ, if they're separated from Christ. But if they're done in connection with Christ, in reliance upon Christ as the mediator, you see, there will be communion and fellowship and peace with God. Because He is the substance of our worship. He is the basis on which we approach to God. His sufficiency overcomes our insufficiency. Our inability to atone for sin and to satisfy the divine justice are met in Christ's sufficiency. Furthermore, in this final and definitive act of worship by Christ, He offers this worship to bring us near to God, to grant remission of sins. What a Savior, what a mediator we serve. What a mediator is revealed here for sinners like you and me to come near to God because of His ultimate sacrifice. His ultimate act of worship and not bringing an animal in place of himself, but in laying himself on the altar of Mount Calvary. He enables us to come. He draws sinners to come in his love and tender mercy. And he says, it is finished. There's nothing that you and I can add to it anymore. And then he enables us to do what Paul says in Romans 12.1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, as they are revealed in Jesus Christ, that ye present your bodies, your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, your reasonable act of worship. So what is it that forms the basis of our worship? this final act of Christ's worship that was His reasonable service so that we can fulfill our reasonable service for those who believe in Jesus Christ. And so here we see the fullness of the sufficiency of Christ. His final and full act of worship brings us near to God in the first place reconciles us to God in the first place. But then it keeps us near to God for those who are believers. It keeps us near to God because it keeps us running from ourselves, from our own insufficiencies to the fullness and the sufficiency of Christ. As we are cut off from ourselves, we are brought to see again that our only hope is in the mediator Christ Jesus. And then thirdly, it enables us to offer our own bodies as acts of worship to God in response to Christ's act of worship on the cross. We must not think that Christ was somehow strong-armed into this work of being the mediator. As if the Father had to force Jesus Christ to, to become flesh. No, that's a false way of thinking. The will of Christ was one with His Father in this work of mediating and offering Himself as a sacrifice for sin. In verse 9, we see that Christ willingly undertook this work. Then He said, Lo, I come to do Thy will, O my God. Christ was not only obedient, He was willingly obedient. 
And children, when you think of obedience, what do you think of? This happens in our home. We tell our children, in fact, it just happened this afternoon. We told our children to do something. They just smiled and stayed sitting on the couch. They didn't do what we had asked them to do, a simple task. They didn't obey. Only after repeated warnings did they finally go and do what we had asked them to do. But is that really obedience? It really isn't, is it? Delayed obedience is never obedience. But what is obedience? Well, if you want to learn what obedience is, listen to the words of Jesus here in, in Hebrews 10. I delight to do thy will, O my God. When the fullness of the time had come, Jesus came. And he was willing to obey what the Father had asked him to do. And what did the Father ask him to do? To lay down his life for sinners like you and like me. Think about that. He didn't just obey. He didn't just do the thing that the Father had asked him to do. He did it willingly. Willingly, from the heart. It's as if Jesus had said to his Father in eternity, Yes, Father, I will do that. I will do that very thing that you ask of me. I will take on flesh. I will live a perfect life. I will satisfy your justice on the cross. I will lay down my life. I will shed my blood. So your justice can be satisfied. That sinners can come. I'm willing to lay myself down as the bridge. Sinners can be drawn into fellowship with the Father. Jesus didn't look for loopholes in obedience. He didn't grumble or complain in his obedience. He did it willingly, in line with the will of the Father. The latter phrase of verse 9 indicates this when it says, He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. He took away the shadows. Now he established the second, namely that his obedience and willingness in offering himself stand as the only way to be reconciled with God, to have sins cleansed and taken away, to be lifted off of us, the burden lifted off of us. Again, These words are highlighting the insufficiency of the Old Testament and highlighting the the sufficiency of the work of Christ in His own obedience. This need for a mediator is met in the sacrifice of Christ. And that's where we end tonight. His actual work in which He engaged to satisfy divine justice. Verse 10 captures this beautifully. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. Verse 14, For by one offering He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified.
the sufficiency of Christ's work is captured here, but also the superiority of Christ's work. What does superior mean? Superior means greater than anything else that you could ever think of. Lake Superior is one of the, is the biggest of the Great Lakes, the deepest of the Great Lakes. The work of Christ is superior to all other work. It does what nothing else can do, you see. It is the only work that can satisfy the divine justice. Christ is the only one that can satisfy divine justice. The only offering of His body that sanctifies or cleanses sinners. Reminds us of the words of the well-known hymn, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The superiority of Christ... by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Nothing else. It's definitive. It's full. It's complete. It's above all other things and mediators that we might look for. It says all these things are insufficient. The fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament, the climax of the will of God, and the free offer of forgiveness in the blood of Christ. It's superior in being efficacious. It's superior in its definitiveness. It cannot be repeated. It's done. It is finished. It's superior because it's the substance of everything that the shadows pointed to. Christ is a summoned substance, superior in his person and work. He stands over all this evening. And he says, here I am in the gospel. Are you seeking a mediator? Here I am. Both qualifications met. A perfect man and God to satisfy the divine justice. Maybe you like to debate with God. You're not quite willing to submit to this mediator. You say, yes, but. You try to add something. You try to lay that footing again and you say, yes, but. My friend, let me tell you this tonight. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the mediator, as that bridge between us and God, it ends all debate. He says, stop debating with God. Repent of your rebelliousness and believe in Jesus Christ. It is finished. The bridge has come down from the side of God. It's laid down so that you can cross over by the grace of God and be reconciled to God Himself. To be brought into friendship and fellowship with God. So you don't have to end in the abyss of hell as you heard about last week. Where the worm never dies and the flame of hell will never be extinguished. 
That place is reserved for those who try to make their own footings, who try to make their own pillars, who try to lay the, the cross beams across, who, who try to surface the road for themselves between you and God. No, the word of God comes to us tonight. And he says, where will you seek for a mediator? And he says, look no further. Look no further tonight. Forsake the shadows and the stain of your own weak attempts to cleanse from sin. Flee. Flee for refuge to this mediator, the one who has done what you could not do in yourself. Listen to his words. Receive his act of worship as the only basis to be reconciled and cleansed. See his work as the only once-for-all sacrifice that ends all debate about what can cleanse your sin and what can satisfy divine justice. My friends, here is a mediator, fully qualified to do what is required of us. And he did it. It is finished. So he calls you to come. He commands you to come. And when you come, you bring maximum glory to God because you're going across that road that God has laid down. A road not of your own making. A road that has been established by grace, by the wisdom and the love of God. Stop building your own bridge and rely on the bridge that God has made. It will never fail. Even in the day of judgment, stand before God, the righteous judge. If you are hiding in Christ by faith, the bridge is solid and secure. There's only one mediator Only one name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. It's the name Jesus. It's the mediator. Perfectly suited to satisfy divine justice. To wipe your record clean. So you can stand before God without fear. And without trembling. Kiss the son. Lest he be angry. And ye perish in the way. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, we thank Thee. We thank Thee so, so much that Thou hast provided a way for us to be reconciled to Thee. What folly it is, O God, to to construct our own bridge, to be our own mediator, or to rely on someone else to be that mediator or to rely on the things that we do. Lord, these things can never satisfy. We only increase our debt, O Lord. We confess that readily. We see what a mess we make of our lives when we we fall back into these patterns of works righteousness or the mess of our lives and all that we've done is ever sinned and, and never rusted in Christ Jesus. O Lord, thou hast set forth thy Son this evening be the mediator of sinners so that we can face thee the righteous judge in righteousness and in peace 
Oh Lord, grant that to each one of us tonight, young and old alike, that none of us would be left behind, but each one of us would be found sheltering in Christ alone, the one who is worthy to be worshipped and glorified and magnified. Lord, help us to see again the beauty of the work of Christ, that there is nothing that we can add to it or take away from it, but that we would hear again the echo of Calvary, it is finished. And we can find joy and freedom in what Christ has accomplished, knowing that we can't lay one stone of our own salvation, that it's all been done in Christ. Help us to rest there tonight as we go our way into the world. That will be our comfort as well for those who trust in thee. Lord, save from the abyss tonight. Save from eternal torment and condemnation of those who have ignored the mediator, who have never sought for one, who don't think they need one. Oh God, expose them for for what they are and bring them to thyself through Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name alone. Amen.